Lauren McGavin stars as Kulchak, the Night Stalker. And now, Darren McGavin in the Night Stalker. subject of novels, plays, films, even an opera. Now, here are the true facts. That was the voice of Carl Kolchak, a reporter for INS, the International News Service, and that was from the opening of the case known as The Ripper. This was originally broadcast uh, September 13th, 1974, and it is the first episode. It's only been four months, Chris, and we're finally at the first episode of what some people call The Night Stalker, some people call Kolchak The Night Stalker. Uh, it was originally just The Night Stalker. Uh, eventually, it became known as Kolchak colon, The Night Stalker. I am your host, Mike White. With me is co-host Supreme, Chris Stashu. Hi there. Uh, I do believe, however, as Professor DeWidziak did point out again, it is Coal Shack. So I think we should. I don't know how you feel about that, but we might want to respect the professor's wishes and uh, refer to him as Coal Shack. I don't know. It's going to be tough for me to break the habit. Because he did say Kolchak for like the longest time. And then he started saying Kolchak. So I don't know. I mean... Either one works for me at this point. I'm looking forward to talking about The Ripper. I don't know about you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Ripper, uh, which was written by Rudolf Borchett and directed by Alan Barron. Like I said, this was the first episode of the series. And it introduces us to Carl Kolchak, who is now in Chicago. And we uh, immediately get the nice panoramic view of chicago and we go to carl who is on the l giving us his his infamous voiceover which i always love the way that 
Darren McGavin delivers these voiceovers, and he's actually recording this on the train, and then kind of uh, we're hearing it also while he's on his way to the INS office, which is right by the train tracks. And this uh, people have taken pictures of this building in Chicago, so this actually was shot. This uh, the outside of it was shot in Chicago. I doubt the rest of the series was shot in Chicago, and I, I'm pretty sure that that opening shot was just stock footage, but at least they're kind of giving us the flavor of Chicago. So now we are in the INS office. Not really a whole explanation of how Tony and Shack have ended up here, but we're basically in this new operation. Tony Vincenzo is, again, for the third time, Shack's editor, and now we're introduced to a whole bevy of characters that work in this INS office. Um, well, not a bevy, I would say. We're at least introduced to two people who work in here, and then we'll get more as the story progresses. I'm actually kind of surprised, Mike, that you glossed over the intro a little bit. I really like the intro for the series. You're talking about the opening credits? Yeah, the opening credits. Oh, yeah. The opening credits are amazing. It doesn't really let you know what kind of show it is, which I always find to be really amusing for a show like Coal Shack, where it's they don't really give away what kind of show you're watching because there's no monsters, there's no spaceships. There's no nothing. So when you get to the opening, you just have him whistling a tune. It's pretty upbeat. And then there's like a quick cut at the end and it freezes on his face, which kind of gives it away. But I, I find it really interesting that, you know, from where the show started in the Night Stalker, where it opens and you kind of get the sense immediately what kind of show this is going to be when the TV show, as opposed to the movie opens, it doesn't really let you know what kind of show this is. Well, I like that whole way that it builds and that it's very happy and upbeat and he just seems to have not a care in the world. And then the way that like the lights change behind him, I really like that. The lamp above his head moves. And the shot of the clock and how it stops and the way that that music is just building 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 until yeah he turns around and you get that bizarro like freeze frame where it's kind of out of focus it's nice it's like a little mini movie at the beginning of every single episode yeah and let's not forget though you know because we haven't really gotten into the episode of the ripper yet that this episode it is technically the first episode that's aired however the episode the vampire three episodes from now is normally considered to be the first episode because that was the one that was normally shown in syndication Hmm. and it also follows the story set down in the first movie, The Night Stalker. So kind of I find that a little interesting. Again, uh, we talked about that with Professor DeWidziak about episodes being shown out of order. And that's that's actually really surprising. And that's kind of that harkens back to kind of stuff that they do now where they kind of revisit a prior story, not immediately, but it like kind of rears its head later in the series. Right. But this for sure was one of the first two episodes because this is produced by Paul Playden, who would be removed from the series, unfortunately, by the third episode. And Cy Shermack would come in for that one. I tend to think of this as the first one, and I don't know why, if it's just because that's how it was on the dvd series or whatever but or maybe what was on netflix from when they still showed the night stalker on there but yeah it it is 
kind of interesting that they do revisit the vampire story. Now, I haven't seen that in a few years, and I am really trying to make a point of not gorging myself on this. I'm, you know, just one episode at a time. Tonight, I rewatched it. I actually had the uh, the script of it, and I was following along to see how close they stuck to the script, at least the uh, I believe the Ju- July 12, 1974 draft of the script. And it's funny, there were three drafts of the script and at least you know that were turned in and they are literally two weeks apart like the first one's june 28th the next one's july 5th the next one's july 12th and that seems to be the version they went with right you know from everything that we've heard and everything that you know able to just from talking to professor dewidziak and others these shows were done very quick turnaround (laughs) Not, this was this was like shotgun TV for the most part. This was like a low tier show, so people weren't really worrying about fine tuning everything. Unfortunately, and that is unfortunate, but it's kind of the way it goes with a show like Kolchak. Well, I have to say that the writing for me it's pretty strong. They capture the voice of Kolchak pretty darn well. I would mm-hmm. say I like the relationship between he and Tony quite a bit. I like this character who shows up uh, pretty early in the proceedings who is, well, let's just be honest, he's coded as gay uh, from the way that he dresses, the way that he speaks, the way that he is so squeamish about blood. At this time, well, we had, you know, Felix from The Odd Couple, but no one would say that he was gay, even though, um, you know, and especially because he he's a divorcee, so, or at, at least asked to leave by his wife. We don't know the circumstances other than perhaps he's too much of a neat freak, but there are certain sitcom and probably dramatic characters who are being coded as gay. And this character of Ron Updike, who's played by Jack Greenwich, is one of these characters. And, and you know, we talked in the, um, the previous episodes about Kolchak maybe not being the most open-minded person here. And I'm curious, it, it, it seems though that he is not holding that against Updike nearly as much as he is holding the fact that Updike is assigned to what becomes the primary you know, case of the story, while Carl has, uh, very early in the proceeding, he is relegated to answering the letters of the advice columnist, Miss Emily, who is on vacation, so then he has to go through something that is so not Carl Kolchak going through and answering all of these letters to, you know, to the lonely hearts, to the kooks, to the, 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 all the strange people that write into the newspaper, him having to take these things seriously is just something that he physically is incapable of. Well, you, you talk about the character of Updike as being gay, I was also under the impression that the other character, and I'm not sure they mention his name, and I'm assuming he probably doesn't come back, the character of the the guy who's developing the photos. Right. Also gay. Oh, you thought he was gay as, I, to, as well? I, I, I never, I like the whole thing with Updike, I never got that he was gay. I just got that he was squeamish. Mm. Um, but the other character, I felt like it was, there was like a more of like an effeminate vibe to his character. And at one point he's like looking over Kolshak's shoulder in a way that, you know, that character, I'm surprising they didn't write him as like reacting adversely because like you said, Kolshak is poking, pokes fun at lesbians. <laughs> In the in the second TV movie, oh, your husband, and it's like clearly a woman, Kolshak. Don't be a dick. 
but obviously, you know, in, in that day and age and, you know, it, I'm, I'm not I'm not personally offended. I could see other people being offended, but, you know, it just Kolchak's a dick. I mean, he he that the whole back and forth that he had with the police chief in the Night Strangler is back in this episode where he's essentially calling everyone who works for the police, you know, a shit heel and that they don't know how to do their job very well. And, you know, he's kind of right. But the way he goes about it is just so Kolchak esque. He's so abrasive in the way that he does things. And he's abrasive towards people that aren't like him as well. Just for um, the record, that is, uh, he was Eddie, the mailroom boy, but I don't even think that he gets the name Eddie in the episode. And he was played by Ron Berger, who actually was uh, quite a regular in uh, some Corman films, uh, including a couple of my favorites, uh, such as Switchblade Sisters. So uh, if you haven't seen Switchblade Sisters, I highly recommend that one. He's the mailboy, yet he's developing photos in the photo lab. Yeah, yeah, kind of odd that he would do that. I mean, hey, you know what? If they don't have to cast somebody else to do that, by all means, why not? Right. You know, I mean, they don't have any young upstart Peter Parker working at this paper. Why do you always keep bringing us pictures of Spider-Man? I don't get it. Don't you shoot anything else? Really high quality photos of Spider-Man, too, on top of everything else. Oh, man. (laughs) Why do you keep bringing us Spider-Man photos? I mean, just human interest. Something else. To be fair, J. Jonah Jameson always asks for pictures of Spider-Man, so... It was Spider-Man. He was wiretapping my office. I know that it was him. Get pictures of him. I have some very, very important information about Spider-Man that I will release in the next Daily Bugle. I'll say this much. Speaking of people who are in charge at a newspaper, Simon Oakland is very much, as Vincenzo is, Vincenzo is very much toned down from the last time we saw him. That's true. He doesn't have the ulcer. He, he's not threatening to, um, you know, to, to have a heart attack or anything. Yeah. I mean, in the last uh, the last time we saw Vincenzo in physical form, not in the uh, Night Killer script form. Yeah, he was like chugging uh, um, milk of magnesia. Yeah. You know, he was not in a good shape, and he was definitely flipping out at the end of that episode as they're driving to New York. Yeah, and so now he's very much he has a very much toned down approach to Kolshak. I mean, he still is like Kolshak, you're not on this case, and he still gets angry with him, but not to the point where Kolshak's like taking things and throwing them at him. Yeah, no broken windows in this one. No, not this time around. Thankfully, this episode treads some very familiar territory i would say very familiar is an understatement for fuck's sake this is the third time we've seen it however i liked it better than the night strangler i would say if anything it falls more into the night stalker territory Mm -hmm. i mean to the point of him spoilers him hiding in the closet of the killer you know it's just like okay this is exactly like it was in the night stalker i kind of feel like there was a point to that though to maybe hit those notes again for people who missed the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. This basically sums up those movies. If you haven't seen the movies, we're going to take what I would consider the best bits and put them into this. So we have the, in this one, uh, they call them hookers at one point. And I guess, I mean, they're, they're basically it's a lot of um, exotic dancers and uh, women that work at massage, massage parlor, parlors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they must consider them strippers or hookers, prostitutes. At one point, there's a cop sitting in there waiting for men to proposition them. So they must consider them prostitutes in some form or fashion. The first one I think we see is working at a strip club. 
which, you know, strippers are not prostitutes. I would say even women who provide happy endings, I wouldn't consider prostitutes. I would stretch it and say they're sex workers at the most. But that is our victim. All of our victims are sex workers of some sort. Except for the last one. Except for the last one, which is kind of odd. It's kind of odd, and and it kind of just happens, and then, I don't know, I found that death to not be upsetting, but just a very lackluster way to finish out that character. But again, if you've watched The Night Strangler and The Night Stalker, you know that Kolchak and female characters, that never seems to be, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not necessarily fated to be together. Well, no, there's never really a good, there's never a well-written conclusion to how those character storylines play out. In Night Stalker, his girlfriend, who may or may not be a prostitute, disappears. In Night Strangler, he leaves with the female character, and then you never see her in this. So, And then the female character in this, the main one, essentially dies off screen and Kolshak just happens across her body by pretty much landing on it. (laughs) Right. Very much like the tramp from the Night Strangler. Yeah. He lands on the fat lady's body, which on top of everything else, Kolshak is just calling her a fatty the entire time, which she's not even remotely fat. No. Until they have that, like, Santa Claus with Tim Allen-esque scene where she's ordering like 15 things off the menu. And I'll have a chocolate sundae, extra hot fudge, and a cookie. It's like, oh my god, we get it. She's meant to be fat, but you couldn't hire an actress who was fat. In the script, they really play that up. Like, at one point, when he goes to visit the old lady, he asks her, like, can you describe her? And she says she was fat. And then in the script, they change the line in the uh, in the finished version, but in the script, he goes anything else and the old lady goes very fat and it's just like no she's not very fat i almost feel like her character was meant to be the character from the night strangler the one that's like taunting cole shack because she was like an older fatter lady who if she gets her comeuppance for being a go-getter i guess is why she gets her comeuppance i mean it, it makes more sense this character is essentially in three scenes and then is dead the next time you see her and she's sweet and she's smart and she's a character i really wish would have been in more episodes i was like okay great we have a very strong female character to be kind of a foil for kolchak this is going to be great you know they they're both reporters they work at different papers they can trade information this is going to be a really good relationship and she you know manages to lure jack the ripper oh geez i gave away the whole thing she manages to lure this character out and that unfortunately she pays the price for it because kolchak eventually finds the information that no you know and he's told her like oh yeah be careful be careful she's like the 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 ultimate woman who knows too much you know and she ends up getting punished for knowing too much she's almost like a hitchcock character you know in that way but i was really hoping we would get uh, what's her name? Jane Plum, I think, yeah. that we would get her in more episodes. There was like a sexual tension between her and Kolshak, too. And yeah, well, everybody wants well, to yeah, Kolshak. Yeah, right. Kolshak is, you know, he's a hound dog. I mean, Darren McGavin, ooh, he's gets your gets your motor revving. Ultimately, having a female character that has actual chemistry with Kolshak die in the first episode, I think it just 
furthers one of the issues that I have had with the show is the handling of ancillary characters because the ancillary characters in the show are handled very poorly and from other shows from this era that I've watched, it's pretty much in line with that. However, it's hard to separate the two, you know, obviously, well, now I, you know, in, in the 21st century with shows like Westworld or Game of Thrones or other shows where these ancillary characters end up having big parts and you, you know, last time on Game of Thrones and it's like from three seasons ago when a character you didn't think would show up again shows up, we're kind of programmed into that mindset of keeping track of characters. And in shows like Shack, characters that could come back just disappear. They die. Or they're written off, like the female character from Night Strangler. I do find it funny, though, that the actor Ken Lynch, who played Captain Warren, was slated to come back later in the show. So I guess they, they're kind of like trying to do both. I don't know. It's You know what? I'm just going to go all SJW. Kolshak is misogynistic towards women. Like, that's what it is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not the case. <laughs> that is totally not the case. Yeah, if anything, I think it was kind of much more just it was product of its times for better or for worse yeah it's interesting there are so many shows of that era and i would say even today there are a lot of tv shows where the same actor will come in and play multiple roles throughout a series you know it's like uh, you look at something like MASH and you look at the credits of MASH and you'll see an actor and they'll have three or four names next to them and it's like what is going on here and then you realize oh yeah well he was a patient in this one he came back as a corporal in that one he was you know working at uh, Rosie's bar in this one so it, it's just the way that they would recycle these I mean we're gonna uh, when we uh, play the interview with Professor Dudziak he'll talk about one of the most interesting ones which is the uh, role that Ruth McDevitt played because she became not an ancillary character, but a main character in the way that she was kind of, for lack of a better term, recycled through the show, playing kind of the same character at one point. But in this one, she is the woman who writes to Miss Emily and then we'll find her later in the series as Miss Emily, which is kind of a strange way to telegraph to yourself. Are you Miss Emily? No, but you are. <laughs> bum, bum, right. bum. Like, Oh, shit. This is like Carl Kolschak is on some next level right now. <laughs> He's, I'm searching for Jack the Ripper, but I'm also in some sort of strange time loop. <laughs> it's like suddenly becomes Robert Altman's images, you know. <laughs> Again, you know, it's it's a, it's really like you said, it's a product of the time. So us 21st century TV watchers really can't put too much thought into it. But unfortunately, like I right. said, we're programmed to think that way. So it's kind of hard not to. But they will do that even today. I just I, you know, if you really pay attention to stuff like, well, I think they do it more through different franchises now. Like my friend Ashley Atkinson is an actress in New York. And she calls this the gauntlet. It is being in every single version of Law and Order. And I think she might have made it other than the one that was kind of like based on true life crimes, like the one where you followed a court case, um, which I think was a very short lived uh, version of Law and Order. But you had SVU and Criminal Intent, the original Law and Order. And I think she played characters in all three of those. And of course, they're all three different characters. They're all three different shows, but you recycle actors that way. I mean, with a show like Law & Order that has 
what is it? At one point, it had four or five shows. Three? Was it three or four or four or five shows at once? <laughs> and each show has like what seems like a million episodes, an insurmountable amount of episodes for one human being to watch in their lifetime. I mean, you're going to go through all those actors, right? But this is cool, Shaq. I mean, this show was on for 20 episodes. You couldn't find somebody else to play the character? One of the things that happens quite a bit, too, is obviously stuntmen and we'll see like what i, I want to say richard keel shows up a couple times i mean there are some very distinct actors that will show up in roles and then other other actors who show up in a lot of roles but their faces are covered or you don't know that it's the same guy so uh, especially like especially stuntmen you get a lot of that yeah. kind of stuff you know to your point with going all the way back to that opening that's one of those things where I'm surprised that that didn't change as the show went along. Maybe had they done a season two, that opening would have changed. Because it usually seems like the opening to a show like this, it would have they would have made it after there had been a few episodes in the can, and they would have used clips from episodes of like a monster attacking Carl, him turning around a corner with the you know flashlight. I'm thinking kind of X Files ish type of things, but those openings where you see like kind of like the greatest right. hits. And I like that this was just this little self-contained thing. And it did, um, apparently it changed throughout a little bit, but it was more in like the way that the music was mixed, those kind of things. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, in this one, the clock stops at 420 and Carl lights up a joint. No, it was much more like, you know, just very, very subtle, like, uh, tweaks to the, the, the actual production. That's kind of like Columbo, right? Well, Columbo didn't really have an opening. I'm talking about the music, though. Well, yeah, Columbo, I mean, the music for Columbo was odd because... There was a part where he, where Peter Falk uh, was whistling this old man, and then that somehow became kind of worked into the, Col- the Columbo theme, even though before that it was more like just the Henry Mancini, you know, uh, mystery th- uh, theme song as it went along. So that that was an odd thing. But that's another one with Columbo. There was one. Well, there were several actors, but there was one actor in particular uh, whose name I'm completely blanking on now. But he was the cake, um, the 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 baker in The Godfather. He showed up so many times in so many Columbo episodes. It was always great to see him pop up, and he he always had lines. It wasn't like he was just like third guy to the left in the background. He was there interacting with Falk, and I was just like. He must have had a good relationship with Peter Falk because not only was he on the old series, but he was also on the the ABC uh, the 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 '90s series as well. So it was uh, always good to see him. So speaking of recycling characters and uh, wholesale recycling and kind of merging two plots together from the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler, and you know, I kind of already said that I like this better than Night Strangler. Why for you? Because you kind you agreed with me. Why for you does this stick out as as a more? I don't know. Why does this stick out for you as better than the Night Strangler? Well, I think one thing that helps it is that this is fifty minutes long, and so it chugs. It really chugs to the point where we might actually lose a couple details as we go along. But I think that's okay. You know, we we set up something that uh, we saw both in the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler, which is 
you have a killer who has gone from place to place to place, much like the vampire in the Night Stalker, and then he comes in and he kills, what is it, five victims, and then he disappears, much like the Night Strangler. So it's kind of a mix of those two things. So uh, it's it's almost like uh, like you're saying, it's like a greatest hits kind of thing, uh, like a remix, almost a, a mashup of the two. But at the same time, rather than it being three hours long, if you're mixing the two stories together, they condense it all to just 50 minutes. So it just moves, 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 and then they keep kind of the the side stuff to the side. You know, I like that, you know, kind of like we were talking about with the Night Killers, the unmade movie, where Kolchak is looking at the newspaper as he's flying to Hawaii and he sees the thing about the UFOs and he assumes that that's what he's going to be working on. They kind of turn that on its head in this episode and he's working on these Miss Emily letters, the first one he reads ends up being an important clue to the mystery that we get later on in the film. So it's nice that, or in this, uh, the episode, and it's nice that we have that carry through. I think that's the mark of really smart writing. And I think the rest of this is, is very smartly written as well. And we just carry this thing along as we're going through. And there's bits of comedy. I really like the scene when he, uh, <laughs> when he's misunderstood, at the massage parlor when he goes in there and he's like oh yeah something is going to happen here tonight and uh i don't want to get in the way i just want to like hide someplace and record it and and take pictures (laughs) that scene ends up being terrific and then that actually leads to him being on the scene for another attack like being part of the police chase which was a nice way to go about it Holshack just likes to watch mike so he claims but how about you? What do you like about this one versus the others, especially uh, versus uh, the Night Strike? Well, I love the Night Stalker, right? So any parts of the Night Stalker that make it into another Coal Shack adventure are okay by me. The Night Strangler, I feel like it really, we've already talked about it ad nauseum, but it stumbles in a couple spots. I think this takes the best parts of the Night Strangler and kind of gets rid of the bad parts, if that makes sense. It really, like you said, this is 50 minutes long, so this is a lot more a streamlined night strangler and on top of that i i have always been probably like a lot of people probably like a lot of our listeners fascinated with jack the ripper so that kind of helps as well it's like it's giving it an established name an established character an established like idea on top of it kolshak is being kolshak and chicago are being antagonized by a essentially you know a killer of mythic proportions and it also kind of explains why jack the ripper you know, disappeared. It also explains Jack the Ripper copycat killers that they're all the same person. So I I like it more because it, you know, Professor DeWidziak talks about this a little bit that this show kind of stumbled a little bit because it never has a mythology. And that's something you and I talked about on the first episode. Why is all this stuff happening to Kolshak? Why? Why is everything happening in Chicago? Is there is there a Hellmouth? a la Buffy. Is Kolshak cursed a la Supernatural? Was his sister abducted by aliens a la X-Files? So it, it kind of it gives the mythology in a way that makes sense because he's just is in a major metropolitan city. But I just like it because it does it does Night Strangler better than Night Strangler did, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I like, well, you know, Jack the Ripper has a compulsion to kill. 
whatever that compulsion is. And I'm glad that they don't try to tie that into him having some sort of formula that's going to keep him alive. And that's why he kills every 21 years is because he needs to kill more right. women and eat more kidneys or any of these kind of things in order to stay alive. Uh, that he has that whole taunting thing of the police again, uh, that, that those things echo. It's interesting because in this, the script, one of the, the few scenes that we don't actually get in the finished film is they kind of take care of it with some of the dialogue between him and uh, the reporter, Ms. Plum, where uh, they talk about the different cases throughout history. Um, there's actually a scene where Kolchak goes to a wax museum and talks to somebody at the wax museum who gives the whole history of Jack the Ripper and some of these other Ripper cases. And ultimately, as we see in the finished product, it was not needed. So I'm glad that they kind of don't have to go farther than there were other cases that happened. And the whole thing with like, you know, the, the rope mark on the one picture and, and what could that be? And, you know, it, they say in the move, in the finished film, they say, uh, it could be a carbuncle. And in the, uh, the script, she says, well, it might be sunburn. So it's nice that they just kind of like, yeah, the, the, let's hurry it along and let's not necessarily go too deep with why does Jack the Ripper feel the need to kill all these women all the time? Five women every X amount of years kind of thing. So, yeah, it just it, it tells us what we need to know. And I think Jack the Ripper is kind of shorthand, which is nice. And I also like that, unlike the Night Strangler, they don't really give the scene where he's like talking with Kolshak and taunting Kolshak. When Kolshak shows up, he just starts chasing after it. He just he's like, you're an intruder in my house. I'm going to kill you. It is much more like Scorsney in The Night Stalker because we I mean, we see his face like once or twice and we don't even get that close up of him with the makeup kind of thing that we got in the uh, The Night Stalker. And we don't get that scene by the pool. We get kind of a scene, you know, it doesn't take place next to a pool, but we get him, you know, kicking the shit out of the cops a couple times, like jumping off of a building from four flights up, all this kind of stuff. The, you know, one of the first signals to Kolchak that this is something supernatural. And then that fight um, that, you know, he's, he's, uh, Kolchak is in the police car after getting busted for, you know, being a solicitor uh, or an improper lewd suggestion, I think is what he's going to be charged with and and him there and i love that scene where uh the ripper is uh battling all of those police and kolchak is there taking photos and it's like the policemen are being thrown like next to him on either side it's like you know he's there like kind of ducking out of the way as like the bodies or or something it unfortunately that scene is a little dark so i was having a hard time seeing exactly what is being thrown and what he's kind of dodging as he's taking his photos well, and that again, that harkened back to Night Stalker for me, where Scorzini oh, yeah. jumps out of the hospital. It's like it's again, it's like practically identical in setup. You have the big monster. Yeah, the big monster jumps out and he, then there are the cops there. 
and Cole Shack's there. It's like, oh, good. I like this in Night Stalker. So this this works for me now. But I'm hoping <laughs> with the next episode of the show that maybe we don't get a amalgamation of one and two, <laughs> because it would be nice to see something that's like completely different. Because, you know, as much as I enjoyed The Ripper, it is not as good as Night Stalker. It's better than Night Strangler. But Night Stalker still stands for me as the best thing that we've watched so far in this podcast. Because everything else that we've seen is essentially a retread, even going back to Norlis tapes. Because Norlis tapes is almost, I mean, it's it's almost just a, a, a kind of like this episode of Kolshak. It's an amalgamation of the parts of the Night Stalker and the parts of the Night Strangler with some kind of voodoo turd Hulk monster thrown in for good measure. Well, and I almost name check that a few seconds ago when I was talking about the close-up that we get of, of Scorzene's face by by the pool in that scene in the Night Stalker. Very much like that close-up that we get of the dead man in uh, the Norlis tapes where we get to see, oh, this guy's really fucked up and just see how messed up he is and how much of a corpse this guy is. And, but we don't necessarily get that with the Ripper. And, and, you know, it's like even when we get to see him towards the end, it seems like he's kind of kept a little bit away from the camera and that might be for the best. Well, and again, he doesn't talk to Cole Shack. He's just trying to kill Cole Shack. I don't really right. need to have Jack the Ripper go on a five minute monologue that gives me nothing like in the Night Strangler with Richard Anderson, because right. that was on top of everything else that of that just not being that great. That took the piss out of his character where he's just like this erudite yeah. doctor who's trying to come up with the the cure to the cure for aging. He wants to be immortal. Mm. Well, it was very Bond villain-esque, where it's like, oh, you want me to tell you what my plan is before I kill you? Let me tell you the whole thing to you right now as you stand there. Yes. With clearly the upper hand to plan how how to stop me. In the summer of 1865, yeah. But I do like how in this episode, they kind of keep the train going of Kolchak is clearly never going to get his man. Or if he does, he's just going to senselessly murder him at the end of the episode and then make a joke about it later. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's no no evidence other than that shoe. And I like the way that we end the whole episode on that shoe. Yeah. So it's like they didn't really prove that he was Jack the Ripper, but that shoe was made 70 years ago. Right. Or they stopped. Yeah. Yeah. They stopped making it like that. That's right. Yeah. Crazy. I thought that was a nice little touch. That's that's that is very X Files. That that little touch, like, oh, and oh, Mulder, come on, you goof, you. And then Mulder's like, but bump bump bump, and then it closes on that, and it gives you something to think about. But it has, I mean, it has no bearing on anything realistically because they're not going to revisit that plot point moving forward. No, and it's a nice, very nihilistic uh, voiceover, you know, which we're used to now. But I think that this one is one of the more. This isn't necessarily as bleak as the Night Stalker because he doesn't go back and revisit our poor Miss Plum has perished, but he kind of just you know ends it with talking about how the police, you know, when they drained that pond, there was nothing there at all other than the clothes, and the police took all the clothes, but he managed to secret this thing off. And so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a nice way to end it, especially when he's like, you know, 
how could you explain it? Who could explain it? And then who cares? I mean, who cares is a fucking fantastic line. It's right up there with, you know, forget it, Jake. It's yeah. Chinatown. Well, I mean, he always prefaces every episode essentially with saying, you won't believe this anyways. You know, you're not going to believe me, even if this is true. Because I'm Carl Kolshak and I'm known for telling, you know, wild stories with zero proof, because up until this point, there has been no proof. This is the first time that Kolshak really has like a tangible piece of evidence that he can be like, look, my theory has some credence to it. Because in Night Strangler, yes, they're in Richard Anderson's lab, but he's dead. So there you go. And in Night Stalker, Scorzini is dead. You could, I guess, make the case that he's a vampire, but getting stabbed through the heart with a stake would kill anybody. So it's kind of interesting that this is the first time he also gets proof of something supernatural happening. And he's still like, yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. Well, and it's nice that he doesn't kill the Ripper in front of the right. police or like as the police are breaking in. So that that was good that there it feels like there's a little bit of a of a time lag between when he kills him and when those cops are going to show up and drain that that pond. Well, and let's be honest here. I don't think we needed another Carl Kolshak murdering someone in cold blood with the police there bit. I'm not sure how many times I can suspend disbelief that Carl Kolshak just gets away with murder over and over. Maybe he's yeah. the murderer. He is the vi- Carl Kolshak is the villain. Yes. Tony's pretty much given up. Tony doesn't hit the roof when Carl starts talking about the Ripper. And luckily, he doesn't have to tell Tony because we have the other reporter. He's able to bounce that off of her rather than coming into Tony's office and coming up with this, you know, as Tony would say, crazy cock and bull story about this killer who's been dead since the 1880s. And how dare you, Carl? I mean, Plum seems like she's into it. You know, she gets it. And, and yeah, she kind of blows him off at first but then as they go along she goes along with it but it's you know tony is left out of the loop i mean i guess that's a chicago joke but he's left out of the loop when it comes to this stuff and it's good and then when carl is going on his rants and stuff tony at this point just seems to accept it so it's not like he's you know going nuts about like oh why are you always bringing up this stuff uh, he seems more like he's worried about the relationship between the paper and the police than anything and that he's trying to kind of fix that by putting updike on the case but he realizes when updike finally hands in his story and and tony starts to read it and he realizes that it's garbage because updike hasn't concentrated on the murders at all he's turned the story into a piece about massage parlors and how skeezy massage parlors are and he's got that line like did you know they have mirrors on the ceiling and tony's just like uh okay you know he knows he sent um you know uh, a boy to do a man's job he knows that kolchak is going to get the details of the murder and then he's probably going to layer on the top of a uh, you know supernatural story to it as well yeah, I'm really curious if in the next episode that's going to carry over because I would I would yeah, like for too. that to carry over because I don't want this to be the X-Files where the, I just don't believe you. I just don't believe you. I just don't believe you for like, you know, essentially half of the show. Obviously, there's only 20 episodes here, so I would hope that they don't do that. But, you know, crazier things have happened. Well, the way that Skinner would come in and and be on their side, you know, and kind of get into that stuff. I mean, I Skinner was always one of my favorite characters from the X Files, and I, you know, and he kind of knew more than he would allow, you know, like to admit kind of thing. 
I like that. And I don't see Tony being that devious person that Skinner was, but I see, I would love it if he changed more into an ally than an adversary. I mean, he's, he's always going to be great yelling at Carl about something, but yeah, if, if we can kind of tone it down a little bit, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And frankly, you know, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I would like for him to go out with Shack at one point. Right. Like in that, that kind of that interaction between the two of them out in the world and him being like, OK, Golshak, you're you're not crazy. I'm I'm here with you seeing this, which I, I guess, again, that kind of that maybe takes the piss out of it a little bit because it's like, well, how can he not believe him at this point? But Mulder and Scully, she didn't believe him for like four seasons. So you can get away with it if you kind of structure it in a way where it's like there's enough reasonable doubt in the character's mind. It doesn't suddenly flip and he becomes the Mulder and and Kolchak becomes the Scully. (laughs) Yeah, that would be... That would That'd be, be un- a little unrealistic. Yes. But we are talking about a, a TV show with vampires and zombies, so you always have to have a little bit yeah, right. in there. <laughs> we, can't, we can't really get that far away from reality. So let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview that we did with Mark DeWitziak about the creation of the Kolchak show, or Kolchak show, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. So the the last time we saw Kolchak was January 1973 with the Night Strangler. And I'm curious what happens between that and September 1974 with the beginning of the series. How does it go from being these two very successful television movies into a series? First off, you have to go to the the end of Night Strangler. And by the end, I mean the end of filming of Night Strangler. Because famously, and by their own admission, uh, Dan... Curtis and Darren McGavin, who got along very well during the filming of Night Stalker, did not get along very well during the filming of Night Strangler. And they were a bit at loggerheads during that filming. One, I don't think Darren was as happy doing Night Strangler as he was Night Stalker. It wasn't as happy uh, a set. Uh, For one thing, Dan was directing now. Dan was in the, Dan was, was the producer of the first one, but John Llewellyn Moxie was in the director's chair for Night Stalker, and 
John Llewellyn Moxie was an incredibly affable, genial Englishman who loved happy sets and loved actors and was a, he was a, very much an actor's director. So Dan took the director's chair, and Dan was can, can, could be very brusque. Could, he had his own way of directing. Um, and I think the way they both put it, it was sort of like two alpha dogs yapping at each other throughout the filming of Night Strangler. So this was a very contentious relationship, and it kind of boiled over on what became the last night of, of, of filming, which was Dan was uh, berating the film crew over something, and Darren had had enough and kind of told Dan to knock it off, and Dan pushed back, and then Darren, Dan said something like, okay, the, the last scene is, and Darren said, well, we've already shot the last scene. I'm going home. You've got enough. Make your movie. And he left and they didn't talk for years. They did not talk. <laughs> they ironed it out. They patched it up and they both agreed they were a little older and a little smarter. And, you know, had both acted not in the best. Um, but what happened was in the interim, Dan went ahead with plans for a third movie and uh, which was going to be called night, the night killers. As you had the night stalker, you had the night strangler, the third one was going to be called Night Killers. And Richard Matheson again was given the lead on doing this. And Richard once again had all sorts of problems trying to come up with a story worthy of Cole Shack and worthy of this, 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 these two movies, which had both done very well. So he called in his very good dear friend, William F. Nolan, to help him. So uh, Richard and Bill sat down and they came up with a concept which sounds somewhat cliched today, largely because it's been done so many times, but it was very fresh when they came up with it in the early 70s, which was it was, it was going to be set in Hawaii, number one. Um, the, the Louise Harper character would return and it was going to be about uh, politicians being replaced by lookalike androids. And there was a UFO uh, alien component to all of this. It's odd that Chris Carter would years later say how much the X-Files was influenced by the Night Stalker, because this story sounds the most X-Files of anything they ever attempted. And yet Chris Carter knew nothing about it. It never saw air. They never, and there's two, there were two thoughts on it. One was Bill Nolan had it in his mind it was a go project and that he actually had gotten his vaccinations and it was ready to go to Hawaii and was all ready to go with to help oversee shooting. And Dan Curtis's memory was, no, it was never a go prop, uh, which and Dan, I would uh, somewhat side with Dan on this one because he and Darren had not patched it up yet. I don't know how it could have been a go pro project with Dan directing and producing and he and Darren still not talking to each other. Um, but the script was written, it was completed, and it was considered certainly a go project by ABC until the whole um, plan changed when ABC expressed interest in not in the third movie, but a series. And when the series uh, was suggested, Dan headed for the exit. Dan had no interest in doing repeating this formula every week. It was tough enough as far as he was concerned, trying to come up with one movie a year 
worthy of the Kolshak character. But to try to do it every week seemed to him lunacy. And then they offered the story editor's position to Richard Matheson, who followed Dan out the door because he said the same thing. You can't do this every week. And uh, but undeterred, uh, ABC and Universal went ahead with the with the idea and everything shifted to the notion of it being a series. And uh, it was problematic from the get go, largely because Darren agreed. Darren had no great interest in revising this. (laughs) Be clear about this. This was not about Darren being so in love with the character that he said, oh, I'm going to do a series. Darren saw this as a, a as a chance to become the executive producer of a series. So when he finally started to talk turkey with the Universal execs, he basically said, I'll do it under the understanding that I'm the executive producer. And Universal got him to agree uh, under those circumstances. They then had no intention of making him the executive producer. They then assigned a, 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 a producer from their ranks, Paul Platon, and uh, after a few weeks, he was replaced by Cy Shermack. And they were the actual producers. But Darren kept acting like he was the executive producer. So this created a tremendous tension on that set. It, you know, it, it was not a happy set. Let me put it this way. It was not a happy experience for everybody who loved that series. And, you know, that includes me. You know, it, it, the, the, the happiness quotient was not high, at least in the production offices. Uh, they struggled. They struggled to do 20 episodes in one season. Um, and Darren couldn't wait for it to be over. Once it had started, he, he was he was not happy. He felt I, I think he felt double crossed because he felt like he should be the executive producer. Um, he and uh, the producers did not get along. Darren acted like the executive producer in name on the actual set. The uh, you know the other producers like Cy Shermack were the executive producers in the writers' room and in the production offices. So you had two separate camps, you know, trying to make this series. It was a night, and and and, and this largely falls on the shoulders of not Darren McGavin not the producers like Cy Shermack. It is falls squarely in the responsibility on the universal executives who should have ironed this out from the get-go. They created a situation which should have never been created. Now, in that, you have a star who's not happy, a star who doesn't want to be there. Um, you know, I, I asked Darren Point Blake, you know, did you enjoy any of it? Did you enjoy shooting it? He said, guess when we shot and I, when I looked a little puzzled, he said, what's the name of the show? And I got it. <laughs> we shot at night. We shot mostly at night. It was long hours, torturous hours. And you were also working on a show which was widely considered on the universal lot as the bottom rung of the television ladder. The big guns at the, on the universal set at that point was Columbo. And then stuff like McLeod. You, you know, the writers would look and say, what are the prestige shows to be working on? Night Stalker was, this is why Bob Zemeckis, <laughs> who is very clever, Bob Zemeckis has forever told young uh, aspiring screenwriters, don't try to sell to the top show on television, try to sell to, to the struggling show, because they're the ones looking for good writers. 
And indeed, following his own guidance, he and his writing partner, Bob Gale, made their first professional sale to the Night Stalker. So, you know, I mean, in what I'm, what I'm saying, in all of the sturm and drang of this series and all of the things that went wrong, some things went wonderfully right, you know. And one of the things that went right was there was a collection of young writers who had kind of a real hip sensibility and believed that they were writing not a horror series, but a sitcom. So they structured it like a sitcom. They structured it with uh, characters. Kolchak was like the bad kid. Vincenzo was like the father figure. Uh, Miss Emily was like the, the wise aunt. Uh, Ron was the, uh, the, the brother, the tattletale brother. And they built a family. And they wrote the office scenes like they were writing a half-hour sitcom, even though it was an hour uh, horror drama. And so if you noticed, and you probably did, that humor, which was a big part of Night Stalker in the original movie, it became a bigger part of Night Strangler. It became a huge part of the series. The, the, the sense of humor factor went way, way up in the series. And some of that is because the story editor was a young writer named David Chase, who's going to go on to create, of course, The Sopranos. And David Chase can be a very, very funny writer. There were very funny moments on, uh, on The Sopranos. And he had something of an antic sense of humor. And some of the other young writers, there was a young writer named Michael Kozel, who a very talented writer, who went on to co-create Hill Street Blues with Stephen Bochco. So you've got Bob Zemeckis and David Chase and Michael Cole. <laughs> you kind of got this, this little colony of young beginning writers working on this show, which is considered the bottom rung of the universal pecking order. And they're sort of just saying, well, let's, let's try anything. Let's just, you know, we've got nothing to lose. Let's do a, you know, a headless uh, motorcycle rider. Let's, let's do our version of uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the headless horseman. Let's just make it a, uh, a motorcycle rider. Let's do, yeah. And out of this actually came some amazingly magical moments. Out of all of this uh, uh, conflict, all of this unhappiness, <laughs> all of this uh, up and down stuff, you have this. Um, you 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 have some really really remarkable television which came out of it. You know, not the least of which is the, the episode I consider to be the height of the series, and 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 in my mind the third best Kolchak story, which is Horror in the Heights. And not surprisingly, it's the only episode actually written by a real credentialed horror writer. In that case, Jimmy Stankster, who had done all those Hammer horror films, including the horror of Dracula, the first Christopher Lee Dracula movie. Jimmy Sangster, by the time he gets to the Night Stalker, is a little bit of a horror legend. And he comes up with a fantastic episode and one with a really good idea behind it. The fact that the monster, the demon spirit monster, comes to you in the form of the person you trust the most. That's a, that's a wonderful idea. That's, that, it, it just, in horror terms, that's just that's gold. So you know, they, they, all some some things went amazingly right in the series. Is what I'm saying, but it was doomed from the start. Even if it had been a happy set, even if Darren was the executive producer, even if he got everything he wanted, even if they had the best writers, and this is you know, Kosha, a lot of fans don't like to hear this, but 
television is a business. It's called show business for a reason. And Koshak probably wouldn't have survived anyway, largely because of the business dynamic. First, ABC was the third rated network of the time. This wasn't the ABC of a couple years later of Happy Days and Three's Company, Charlie's Angels and Love Boat. They're going to go to the top with all of that jiggle and uh, snickering stuff that they did in the 70s. But this is before that. So ABC is a distant third. They're not only a distant third, but when did Night Stalker air? Eight o'clock Friday nights. What's it against? It's against Sanford and Son and Chico and the Man on NBC. What is Sanford and Son and Chico and the Man? They're the number one and number two rated shows in the entire country that season. Kojak was getting slaughtered. Never mind the monsters. This was the thing he couldn't be. <laughs> he was up against Fred Sanford and Chico and the Man. And those things were juggernauts. Night Stalker spent the entire season near the bottom of the ratings. The idea that, you know, some kind of happy ship would have saved it is, is really naive because, in truth, it probably never was going to survive. You know, Kolshak was ahead of its time. You know, Kolshak was the kind of series which, if made today, would be made for uh, a cable channel and could target its audience, demographically target its audience, and do very, very well with a few million viewers and be a big cable hit of some kind. Back then, you were going after a broad audience as a weekly series. And something to keep in mind is that until the X-Files came along in the early 90s, and even then the audience was starting to be diluted because you had four networks instead of Three, you had uh, the start of cable channels and cable selection. So the number you needed to be a, a hit went down as the number of channels increased. If you look at the, at the whole history of science fiction and fantasy and horror on television, only one series pre-X-Files ever made the top 20. Only one. Care to take a guess? I have no idea. Twilight. And you're never going to get it. <laughs> Jack Webb's Project UFO. <laughs> it was number 19 for one season. It's it. The, so not the Twilight Zone, not Star Trek, not <clears throat> nothing in that realm of genre stuff ever made the top 20. Because it was a very select audience. It was a very targeted audience. It did, you know, comedies got big numbers. Westerns got big numbers. The, you know, action dramas got big numbers, but not that kind of stuff. I mean, Star Trek, you know, as best was was, you know, in the the forties and fifties of, of top rate shows. The Twilight Zone was hovering around forty for most of its time. It got a great audience. It was very well, you know, received, but it was never a in television terms a big hit. So. Here comes Night Stalker. You know, it's it's it ends the season down in the seventies, as far as ranking for for the season goes. That's cancellation numbers. That's instant cancellation numbers there. You know, and there, there's no saying different. You know, from, from that. But on top of all that, Darren wanted out. Darren wanted it out so bad he could taste it. You know, and a lot of people. There are people who blame uh, Fred Silverman 
for canceling the Night Stalker. To this day, you still get people saying, well, you know, Fred Silverman canceled it because he didn't like these kinds of shows. And when he came over from NBC, he, 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 he can or CBS, he canceled it. And that, that's nonsense. He did not. The show was canceled before Fred Silverman showed up. Um, you know, so there are all sorts of people who say, well, this is what did it or that's what did it. And when I flat out asked Darren McGavin, you know, who canceled the Night Stalker? He took his finger and he pointed it at himself. He said, if you want to know who, who, who canceled the Night Stalker, I did. He said, I went to the network and I said, please cancel it. And they said, well, you know, the studio may have, have other ideas. So he went to the studio and he said, well, please cancel it. And they said, well, maybe the network. And he said, well, you clowns get together and cancel this. And Darren took full responsibility for Kolshak ending its run at 20 episodes. So anyway, that was a long answer to a short question. So I have two questions for you. Um, in your opinion, knowing Darren, what do you think the future of Kolchak would have been had the third film been made if there hadn't been the falling out between Dan Curtis and Darren McGavin? And do you feel well, like in talking to Darren, he ever had any regrets in the show getting canceled, you know, way after the fact? No, I don't think Darren ever got any regrets uh, about the show getting canceled. Um, I, I, I think he was glad to be on other things. Uh, you know, I, Darren only ever expressed a great deal of pride in the first movie. He loved the first movie. Why did he like the first movie? Because in his mind, it was so wonderfully original. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. It was, it was fresh. It was, he just, you know, if you mentioned the original movie to Darren, he'd light up, he'd beam. It's like, you know, it was this, and again, it was a very happy experience. The shooting in Las Vegas, the set, everything about that experience, Darren loved. As soon as he got the script for Night Strangler, he was unhappy. And he was unhappy because he just thought it was a repeat of Night Stalker. He looked at that script and said, oh, it's just repeating the formula. And uh, there's nothing new here. And uh, we're just putting it in another city. Or adding a few bells and whistles, but this is Night Stalker dressed up with a little bit, you know. And, and I and I obviously think he's giving that story a very very short shrift. <laughs> There's a lot more to Night Strangler than that, but in Darren's mind, it was never more than a rehash. And then the series, he always claimed he never wanted it to be a Monster of the Week series. That he wanted it to be more about the issues of the 1970s. And if there were monsters, the monsters would be more metaphoric in their use and representing the oil companies and big government politics. This is what, this was Darren's view of it. Uh, and it stated from the very first press conference for, for Night Stalker. And it's clearly not what the show became. The show did become a monster of the week show. And, they never stop to think any of it out. Today, all the shows that are descendants of Night Stalker, X-Files is a descendant, direct descendant of Night Stalker. So is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So is Supernatural with the Winchester Boys. And what all of those shows have in common, besides being sharing a lot of DNA with Night Stalker, the other thing that they have in common is they all did not make the mistake of Night Stalker. <laughs> they built the mythology. 
what is it about the Winchester boys that keeps attracting all this supernatural stuff? What is it about Buffy and her town? Well, there's a hell mouth underneath it. Oh, okay, well, that's, that's the reason. You know, what is it in the X-Files? They built a greater mythology. They never sort of stopped and said, why would all of these supernatural things happen to this one person, this, 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 this blue-collar reporter in Chicago? Why would every, why, what's it about him that attracts zombies and vampires and werewolves and aliens and all of the things that week after week after week? And they never, this was a time when television didn't think they, they, they had to do that. We're just repeating the formula week after week, and you're going to show up for the formula. Not ever stopping to think that, well, science fiction and fantasy and horror fans are different. They do ask those questions. They do want to know. You know, there's still people asking what it was about Collinsport that that attracted all the supernatural things in Dark Shadows all those years years later. It's like, you know, well— it could have been the same answer that Buffy came up with, which is the town's over a hellmouth or whatever. Whatever the answer is, fans they 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 want those answers. They, they so Night Stalker never thought it out, you know. In in the, sort of the 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 hustle of doing a weekly show and co- trying to come up with twenty good horror ideas in a season, which is really tough, really really tough. Um, I mean, good ideas in the horror realm are hence, you know, most of the great horror stories are reiterations or reworkings of established stories that, you know, we've, you've heard before, you've seen before. And the best you can hope for is that they're served up with a certain amount of originality and style in how the story is tell is told. Night Stalker fits that. There's nothing terribly original about Night Stalker except how it assembles the bits and parts of, di- of things that didn't go together before. The mystery, the detective mystery, the newspaper comedy, and the traditional vampire story of a malevolent vampire invading a major city. All of those things we'd seen before. We didn't see them together before, and that made Night Stalker an incredibly original thing. But when they got to the series, they were just they were making it up as they went along, which is what TV does. But they didn't have a grander vision. And that's something most horror shows and fantasy shows feel the need to have now. It almost goes with the uh, with the program. It says, OK, we're going to start this program. It's going to have this fantasy. And we're going to slowly build you into the world. And slowly we're going to explain to you that there is a greater mythology at work here. And the greater mythology explains the week to week. And, you know, that's something which, again, Night Stalker never had. You know, there's one aspect to Night Stalker that may have worked if they had done the third movie. And since we're in the realm of what if, and we're all playing with the bank's money anyway, let me propose that maybe Night Stalker would have worked and continued to have worked if it had adopted the Columbo model. Uh, oddly enough, I'll go to one of the other, you know, series that I've written a book about. Columbo was, you know, originally done like Night Stalker as a TV movie. They both have their origins in what was sometimes called the movie of the week. So in Kolchak's case, it was the Night Stalker. In Columbo's case, it was prescription murder. And, you know, then they did with both of them. They did a second. They were successful, but they did a second TV movie. Night Strangler in the case of Kolchak, 
Ransom for a Dead Man in the case of Columbo. Then they wanted to do a series for both. The Columbo people were smart. The guys who created Columbo, uh, Dick Levinson and Bill Link, they went and said, no, 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 no. This is too rich a formula. You cannot repeat this every week. You're going to burn out the audience. You're going to burn out the writers. But you can do seven of these a year. You can do six or seven of them a year. If you get the best mystery writers in the TV business and you get the best producers, you do this with a high class and you shoot it like a movie, more like on a movie schedule. You could do maybe six or seven of these a year. And that's how they did Columbo. That allowed Columbo became part of that mystery wheel that aired on Sunday nights. And it alternated every every four weeks. You, you One week you've got Columbo, the next week you've got McLeod, the next week you've got McMillan and Weiss, and then the fourth week you've got that spot that never could fill, like having failed shows in that fourth spot. But Columbo was the, 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 the reason they could do Columbo at such a high level was they built in a lot more time, a lot more thought. Now, if you could have done Night Stalker every four weeks and done 90-minute stories and gotten the best horror writers in the business to do it and the best producers in the business to do it, and they came up with really, really good ideas that were then executed at a very, very high level, I think that would have given Night Stalker a fighting chance. You know, That's fantasy, by the way. It's as much fantasy as anything that ever appeared on Night Stalker because it's existing in a universe which never happened. So what I'm saying is, could that have, ha- could, could that have worked? You know, it, it might have worked. And also if it had been part of a wheel that was similar, like Columbo was part of a mystery. You know, every week you were coming back with mystery and the mysteries were different. McLeod wasn't like Columbo, which wasn't like a Macmillan and wife. So say, you know, it had been part of a wheel. Let's say one week it was Night Gallery, and the next week it was Night Stalker, and the next week it was something else, and you knew you were always coming back for something on the spooky side. That might have worked. You know, it, it's, I think it would have given it a, a much, much better chance than how it worked, and I think, you know, maybe Darren would have been happier with the process, especially if he had been surrounded by, you know, the best of the best. But it didn't. And we are left with what we have, which is 20 episodes done under great duress, uh, a lot of fighting and infighting. And out of that came not just some sublime episodes, but within each of those episodes, some sublime moments. Because the, 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 the great thing about the series, the most wonderful thing about the series, as far as I'm concerned, is it's 20 more chances to see Darren McGavin as Carl Kulshak which is seeing the perfect blending of an actor with a role. You know, the same thing with Peter Falk and Columbo. It's how many chances are you going to get? So even if these, all these episodes are not up to the highest standard, it, Darren McGavin in that seersucker suit and that pork pie hat is something magical. And every episode gives you a moment. And some of them, even, you know, episodes which might not be that great, they have moments which are either richly comic or rich, richly terrifying. And so I think that the series is a series of triumphs, small triumphs, but triumphs nonetheless. And then, you know, just the, the, its ultimate triumph is that how incredibly influential it is. 
when you take the whole Kolshak universe, the two movies and the series, you are looking at something which Rolling Thunder is going to echo through the decades, and it's going to keep coming back in shows which use the Night Stalker DNA to replicate and build their own monster worlds. And that, to me, is the real legacy of the Night Stalker. Well, one piece of that DNA which always struck me as being kind of odd was the recycling of the uh, Jill Millay um, Quester Tapes uh, score as being the theme to Kolchak. I mean, the the opening of Kolchak is a classic, and that theme song is amazing. And so as I'm watching the Quester Tapes, it's just like, what am I watching? What just happened? <laughs> yeah, and you know, this this is one thing which is musically. I I I I I I have no musicologist. I have no expertise when it comes to music at all. I don't play an instrument, you know, and so you know, I don't have a tin ear. I can carry a tune. I can even harmonize on occasion, but my music knowledge is very very limited. And because it's very very limited. When I wrote the first version of the Night Stalker history, the version that was published in 91 as Night Stalking, and uh, after it was published, I realized that because of my ignorance of music, I had neglected really to discuss the music in the show and how important music was. Oh, moments, by the way, not just... Uh, Gil uh, Malays and uh, the the other composers who contributed to the series, but also Bob Colbert's music for the Night Stalker and Night Strangler. So I did the the next best thing. I, I when, when I redid the book, when the next version of the book uh, was being put together as Night Stalker's companion, I went to the leading expert on music for television, who is John Burlingame. And I interviewed Jane. I said, John, tell me all about the music. <laughs> now, John knows where every cut is, every edit that everyone's done. John knows everything about everything when it comes to music. And so John, he knew everybody who worked on Night Stalker, and he knew all the, their, their work and things like this. And he knew, of course, that the theme had come from the Quester Tapes. And... So, you know, between what John, which was told me and other people have told me and things like this, I was able to patch together the story of the opening credits. And this, this, the opening credits was that, you know, things were still pretty happy. Uh, you know, they were, they were in the beginning stages of putting the series together and people's energy was still up. Um, but uh, the, the things were still done at a very hectic pace. And so, you know, they basically told Darren that, you know, they had to shoot the opening sequence for the the series and it had to have, you know, a, a theme as well. And they assigned one of the studio people, Gil Malay, to do it. And uh, so Darren is driving around the Universal lot in one of those golf carts. And, you know, he, he finds Gil Malay and says, you know, you, you're going to do the, the theme. And Gil says, like, oh, great. You know, like when? He said, this afternoon. we got to shoot it this afternoon. <laughs> so he's got to come up with a theme to a series. And he goes into the Universal Library and he finds this theme, this part of the music that he had used in Quester. And it was the whistle. 
and he he he, he grabs that, he extracts that, he plays it for Darren. Darren likes it, so they go over to the set and they shoot it. They shoot the the, the whole idea of the whistle, and Carl comes in whistling, and it's over. The music is over. And that's, you know, they, they, they did it completely on the fly without a lot of talk, but, you know, they had to solve a problem and they had to do it fast. And, you know, in an ideal world, they would have given Malay uh, a couple of months to have written a theme, a real theme <laughs> for the show. Uh, but of course, it turned into a magical moment. It is one of the most memorable openings uh, of, any, uh, of a series. And nobody listens to that music and thinks Quester. Everybody listens to that music and thinks Kolshak. And it's it's wonderful. And, and and John explained this to me because again, I know I'm like most people. I know what music I like, but I can't explain to you sort of why I like it. I can't say I can, it's like defining love. You know, it's, it's well I can tell you that what I love, but I can't explain it or define it. Well, John could explain, you know, why does Bob Colbert's music work in in Night Stalker, and why does that theme, Malay's theme, work for the series? And John said, you know, they're very different. You think about it. You listen to the thing, and you think you think about the uh, the Colbert theme, and it's very jazzy, and you then you think about the 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 series theme, and the very different, and yet the same, which is to say, they both have upbeat qualities and underneath them is a very unnerving quality. It's integrated in the jazzy score of Colbert did for this, for the movie. It's takes its turn. You have that jaunty whistle and then all of a sudden you get the minor key and it turns dark and it turns a little disturbing. And, but it's the same quality of having the mixture of the jaunty and the upbeat with the dark and the disturbing and it's in both pieces of music. And that was explained to me by John Burlingame. I did not come up with that myself. <laughs> I'm not that smart when it comes to music, but somebody who knows a great deal about music explained it to me and I put it all into the book. And so I said, you know, cause uh, okay, I don't know about music. I'm going to go find somebody who does. And you know, it, it beefed up that part of the book when I got to do it again. So I could explain where that came, where did the whistle come from? You know, where did the whistle, the whistle doesn't really come out of Darren McGavin. It actually comes out of something done before. And uh, it, it, and it was a very, you know, that's what TV is. TV is stuff done on the run and it's problem solving. You are constantly solving problems. You guys, theater is the same way. Theater is about solving problems. You know, movies get a lot more, movies get to make a lot more mistakes because they get a lot more time bigger budget, a lot more people, and you're allowed to have these times where you make your mistakes. TV and theater, it's, you know, solve it now. Here's the problem. How are we going to do this? And you do a lot of improvising. You do a lot of compromising. And you do a lot of thinking on the run. And that theme is a really good example of that. This is a very nerdy question, and if you don't have the answer, that's absolutely fine. One of the things that I know about some television shows, one of the most infamous things is like, oh yeah, they showed the episodes of Firefly in the wrong order. It feels like, looking at the credits of The Night Stalker, it feels like they 
didn't have a whole lot of lead time between when they were shooting the episodes and when they were airing the episodes. So the whole idea of showing stuff possibly, quote unquote, out of order almost seems like an impossibility. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, you know, that that was not uncommon, you know, because post-production sometimes you shot it, but then post-production was longer on certain episodes and things like that. So, you know, you, with any show, you see the order in which they shot them and then the order in which they aired can be very, very different. And, you know, Night Stalker is not exactly what you'd call a model of continuity. Um, probably the, you know, the most you know, egregious example of that is Ruth McDevitt, who by some count plays three different characters on on the show because, you know, she appears in the a pilot, you know, and you hear about, you know, Carl has to take over, you know, Miss Emily's advice column, you know, and when he goes to track down the woman who, who wrote the letter to Miss Emily, it's Miss Emily, it's Ruth McDevitt playing this part of this woman who sent the letter. And then, you know, she appears and, but then they're calling her Miss Edith. She's Edith cows. And then she's Miss Emily. And then she's Emily. <laughs> this isn't a tough one, guys. <laughs> no. So they, they have, they, they, they have her called two different names. She's Edith cows and Emily cows. And she's a character, uh, a third character in the pilot who's sending a letter. How confusing does this get? You know, uh, so they they really weren't strong on continuity. You know, they really were. They, this wasn't something that they that they worked on. You know, um, and it, it, it it's like every every episode was like a new day, a little bit with them. And so they just okay, well, this is where we are now. It's a reset button. You know, in some writers' rooms, um, and when you when you're on the air for a long time and you've done a lot of episodes, it's hard to remember all of the rules that you've set up for yourself, all the things you've done. And, you know, continuity sooner or later is going to come back and bite you in the ass. So, you know, there's a phrase in writer's rooms called it never happened, you know, and it's like, well, okay, we're all in a writer's room and we're writing an episode of a series and we're working on this episode and I come up with an idea. And one of you say, we can't do that because in season two, we had an episode and I say, Nope, never happened. Never happened. <laughs> it's, it's a way of just saying, you know, this is, this is where we are right now. This is, this is, this is where we, we, we we've got to do a show and we've got an episode to write. And this is too good an idea to throw over. But when you're only on one season, you know, and you only have 20 episodes and the continuity really stands out in just 20 episodes when you, when you realize that, Ruth McDevitt played three different characters or, or had three different names, let's say, because the Miss Edith and the Miss Emily character, we will say, yeah, I, I, I had a little fun with that, actually, because um, because when in, in 1994, uh, when I wrote uh, the what was then the first Kolchak novel in 20 years, Grave Secrets, one of the things I was wanted to do with Grave Secrets was I wanted to bring all of the sensibilities together, the sensibilities from the movies, the sensibilities from Jeff's books and the series. And I wanted to find a way to get, use all of the characters. Um, so um, what I just, what I put in the book, I put in a joke that Miss Emily had a, 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 an identical twin sister named Miss Edith. 
and the Cowell sisters live together, like almost something like out of arsenic and old lace. And it's a way of reconciling. Why was there a Miss Edith and a Miss Emily? And why did they look exactly alike? Well, <laughs> here's your answer. <laughs> they were twin sisters. Um, so, you know, I, I had a little fun with that notion of, which was basically a continuity problem in the series. I kind of embraced the continuity problem and, uh, and made it part of the, 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 the Kolshak universe, uh, with great secrets. But, it, it it was. I mean, like I said, it it, it just speaks to the, the sheer level of of madness with which a lot of that stuff was being done. They was very. I mean, the David Chase told me that you know the hours were brutal. He said, you know, that the, the when they were working on uh, Night Stalker on the series, the biggest hit in television at the time, as among people, not not from a rating standpoint. But from among other people in television, the show everybody talked about was the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he never got to see it. He was never home on Saturday nights when uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show aired because he was always working on Night Stalker. And, you know, it was like not having a life. They were they were they were working brutal hours and really hard. And, uh, so, you know, I, I know some people think I'm very rough on the series. I've, I've heard this before, you know, from some fans who, you know, who've read the book and, you know, I try to be, I'm kind of middle of the road on the series. You know? And I always very quickly to point out to say, you know, well, who's not middle of the road? Who hated the series? Dan Curtis, Jeff Rice, Darren McGavin and Richard Matheson. They all hated the series. <laughs> that's a, well, that's pretty much the big four right there. Uh, as far as the creation of Kolshak goes. Um, and then you've got people who adore the series, who just think it's it, it's absolutely wonderful. And you know, I'm somewhere in the middle on the series. I, I there, there's there's things about it I just love, and it's always going to be one of my favorite series of all time because it's 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 got Carl Kolchak in it, so it's it's got Darren playing Carl. So yeah, I'm always going to be, but I'm not going to be blind to the things that went wrong, and I, I can't in good conscience sit here and go. You know, everything they did was brilliant. And it was a, a first to last, you know, every second of those 20 episodes is just, you know, it, it's Royal Shakespeare Company quality. It, it, it's not. Um, but given the conditions under which they made the episodes, it's really remarkable how much really good stuff ended up on the screen. Was there any fallout for Jeff Rice? that there was a Kolchak series. Was he ever going to write more Kolchak books? Well, of course he was. And, the, you know, the deal was that um, Pocket Books was very, very happy with the sales on uh, Jeff's original novel and then his novelization of uh, Night Strangler, Richard's script for Night Strangler. So they were very, very pleased. And if you remember back then, there were a lot of paperback books based on series. Um, there was a whole series, even after the show ended, there were there, there continued to be Man from Uncle novels. Uh, there, there must have been like 25. When Dark Shadows was on there, there was like 30 novels by Marilyn Ross, which was really Dan Ross, but they used his wife's name uh, to, to write the books under because they wanted the woman's name on the books. There were the, series tie in novels were, were big back then. There were Get Smart novels, there were, you know, uh, Batman novels, there, there was everything. They, they, these were big merchandising things. So Pocket Books was very, very pleased, and they figured, well, uh, let's do five more of these, and we'll have Jeff novelize 
the uh, the series episodes, and Jeff was very pleased with that. He had a standing deal, but you know the problem was that uh, uh, Universal and and ABC went ahead with the, the this with the series without getting Jeff Rice's sequel rights, uh, which they were contractually obligated to do. And Jeff kept asking about the the sequel rights, and they kept putting him off and. It wasn't until deep, and this was also been blamed for the cancellation of the series. The fact that Jeff filed a lawsuit against the the the, the, the Universal and ABC for essentially going ahead with the series under an illegal basis without having the the contractually sequel rights knocked down. Well, this created uh, you know an immediate backlash against Jeff. Um, I mean, this was a day when, you know, a star as big as Cliff Robertson could be blackballed for blowing the whistle on studios and network practices. Uh, you know, a, a young beginning writer, this was this was career suicide. And uh, he was immediately you know, blacklisted from the, the studio lot. He uh, his, his contract was canceled and, you know, it basically ended his career before it started. Um, it it you know, in retrospect was probably a mistake. Now, you know, he probably saw himself as standing up for his rights and you can't blame him for that. And if it was a mistake, it was his mistake to make, but Jeff never worked in Hollywood again. I mean, the, the line you'll never work in this town again has great resonance, uh, for Jeff because, uh, that, that did it, you know, it, it when the series was killed so now, the good thing for everybody who loves Carl Kolschak is this, that when this case was finally decided, it was not decided in court. It was decided like most lawsuits are, are decided the day before it was going to go to court. There was a settlement. And in that settlement, certain rights were granted to Jeff, among them the literary rights to Carl Kolschak. So, you know, the, the ABC owns what was, which is now Disney, by the way. So ABC Circle Films owned the dramatic rights to Kolshak. They owned everything, actually, until the settlement. And so Disney now owns ABC. Therefore, Disney now controls the dramatic rights to Carl Kolshak. Dramatic rights mean movie and TV series. Literary rights and certain merchandising rights were awarded to Jeff, which is what has allowed for comic books and Moonstone's uh, ongoing effort to keep Kolchak alive through not only comic books, but also short story anthologies and the occasional novel. All of this was, was given. So Jeff was allowed to sort of keep Kolchak alive um, over the last uh, 20 or so years of his life by uh, controlling the literary rights. So something good did come out of all that. If not, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Jeff wanted to have a career as a writer and perhaps an actor. You know, Jeff was originally slated to play the coroner in Night Stalker. He was going to play McCurgy uh, in, in Night Stalker, and he was going to play it in makeup as a sort of a young, swarthy Indian uh, type. And he had already screen tested for it. And the first producer assigned to the movie, Everett Chambers, who later worked on Columbo, um, okayed him for it. And so they, he thought he was, and then later he found out that, uh, 
he wasn't going to play the part, and they gave it to Larry Linville, who did not look Indian and did not look like he would have a last name like McCurgy, uh, but they gave it to Larry Linville instead. So um, Jeff, but Jeff saw a career as sort of uh, acting and writing, and uh, you know all of that went away. All of that went away very, very fast with uh, with the filing against them, and um, it it you know it, it, it's odd because the system it, it was almost like he lived out the ending of his own story, isn't it? When you think about it, the end of the first story is Kolchak getting slapped down hard by the powers uh, uh, above him and being denied a chance to get his story out. And, um, you know, he ended, you know, uh, the last we see Kolchak in the, he's in uh, what's obviously a shabby motel room of some kind. And, you know, Jeff ended up, you know, uh, not destitute, you know, but Jeff ended up well, going through a lot of hard times and he ended up, uh, you know, not with the career that he would have liked to have had. So, yeah, it was there was a lot of fallout for that. And, um, you know, Kolchak, you know, let me put it this. I've said this before. You know, I remember this 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 was once that uh, reading an, an interview that uh, Boris Karloff had given. Uh, and somebody had asked him after Belagosi had died, somebody had asked him about Bela and, uh, Boris famously said, uh, you know, poor Bela, he was worth a lot more than he got. Um, I think that's, I, I would echo that for Jeff Rice. He was worth a lot more than he got. When it comes to the first episode of the series, uh, the Ripper, why would they go with a story that was so darn close to what we had seen in the previous episodes? Well, not only so darn close, the very story that Richard Matheson rejected <laughs> is, you know, you know the story that when he was trying to come up with the idea for Night Strangler, he uh, had thought about Jack the Ripper. And he thought, well, what would be the ideal protagonist here to follow up the Night Stalker with? How about the most infamous and notorious serial killer in history? How about Jack the Ripper? But, you know, Richard was very, very close friends with Robert Block, who's, by the way, centennial was yesterday, uh, 100th anniversary of, uh, of Bob Block's birth. And a uh, great writer, wonderful writer, and a funny guy, too. Really, really funny. And uh, Bob Block, you know, had written Psycho, but he had also written several stories in, 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 about Jack the Ripper including the landmark story, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, a classic short story which was done as an episode of Thriller, going back to Boris Karloff. And uh, because he sort of had come up with the idea of Jack the Ripper still alive, you know, the, the idea that he could have survived over the time, Richard had a little bit of a cause to pause moment when they were working on Night Strangler. I thought, maybe Bob wouldn't like this. So he called up uh, uh, Bob Locke and said and told him what he, he was working on the second Night Stalker movie and uh, and gee he'd like to use Jack the Ripper would he mind and you know in Richard's memory Block said that he didn't mind but he could tell in the way he said it he did and Richard felt like he shouldn't get near it so he dug his heels in he and and he said it was murder it was one of the toughest things he ever did was coming up with the second idea was coming up with the whole idea for Night Strangler. 
And um, so he rejected the idea of using Jack the Ripper because of his friendship with Robert Block. And he came up with the whole Richard Malcolm idea. He came up with the whole idea of the, the alchemy. And he came up with the whole idea of marrying it all to the Seattle Underground, which he had visited with his family on vacation. That's where he got the Seattle Underground. So the series comes along and it starts with the very idea <laughs> that Robert, that Richard Matheson tried to avoid all that time with the second. It's, you know, the very first one out of the gate. It's Jack the Ripper. You know, and again, it shows the, 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 the continuity problem because, um, the, the episode introduces very, very quickly the idea that electricity can kill the entity that is Jack the Ripper. But it never explains how or why. Just that electricity is, you know, at some point, Kolchak puts it together that he leaves New York because the, 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 the state had the electric chair. He was afraid of the electric chair. Aha, electricity must be the thing. And electricity is what kills Jack the Ripper and all of that. But they never explain, what, they never explain how Jack's life has been unnaturally prolonged, how the Ripper has been able to survive all these centuries. They never give you any of that information. In, in, in an hour episode, you get to the end of that episode, and I know there are a lot of people who love that episode, but there's a, the, the, the horror part of me says you've got to play more fair, not less fair than you do with straight drama, because you're making greater demands on people's suspension of disbelief. So I immediately want to know, you know, still want to know, why is electricity fatal? Why, why electricity with nothing else? Why is electricity fatal to Jack the Ripper? And I don't really care what the answer is, just as long as you give me an answer. You could tell me anything, you know. You know, his insides are made of pumpkin seeds, and they'll be fried to bits if he gets it near electricity. Fine, I'll, I'll take it. I'll buy it. You know, I'll buy anything you tell me. Just tell me something. Just give me a reason to hang my disbelief on for this. So it is a little odd, and there's almost sort of a throw-your-hands-up-in-the-air aspect to the fact that Jack the Ripper was the first uh, episode right out the bat. And, and, and by the way, it's a very well-shot episode. It's one of the better-shot episodes. So even as I'm saying you know, that there was problems from a story standpoint, there you go. It's a very atmospheric episode. It relies greatly on the techniques of Night Stalker and Night Strangler. There are scenes in The Ripper which absolutely mimic scenes from the other two. But it's still a very, a very well-directed episode. It's a very well-shot episode. Um, so, you know, like I say, the, 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 even within episodes where you say, well, not everything went right, there's still things which, 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 which go wonderfully right. Well, thank you so much for your time again. This has been great talking with you.
right, we are back, and we were talking about the first episode of Kolshak, The Night Stalker, The Ripper. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to say. I did want to point out one funny thing, is that I tried to um, make contact with the director of this episode, Alan Barron. We actually have a little bit of uh, history. Uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Blast of Silence episode of The Projection. I have not. Is this like Tarantino level of history? (laughs) No, not at all. Blast of Silence is a absolutely terrific crime film. It is almost like an American neorealist film. It's one of Martin Scorsese's movies. He loves talking about this film all the time. You know, one of those like up there with uh, Raw Force and The Red Shoes. You know, if you get Scorsese talking about Blast of Silence, he'll just go on for a long time. And it's just a pleasure to listen to. Baron uh, wrote, directed, and starred in Blast of Silence. It's, like I said, terrific movie, so we did an episode on it, and uh, Baron had written a, uh, a an autobiography talking about that, talking about some of his experiences, and apparently... I should have just put a microphone down in front of the book because almost every question that I asked him, he would say, yeah, I wrote about that in the book. And it's like, yeah, can you elucidate on that just a little bit more? (laughs) And then I was trying to like, you know, he worked with Errol Flynn and he's down in Cuba. And I'm just like, oh, hey, you know, you worked with Errol Flynn. You're down in Cuba. What would the, what was that like? That must have been some sort of party. And he's just like, nothing untoward happened. And he just like shuts me down. And then at one point I, I made the mistake of saying that he was in, I think it was, I said he was in the Navy when he was really in the Coast Guard or vice versa. And he just fucking flipped his wig, man. He was just like, you know, did you read? my book and i'm like holy shit dude you know (laughs) so it is it's the only time i've ever put out an an interview without doing any editing because i just wanted people to hear how awkward that interview was like i even left in those these really uncomfortable silences so he essentially tom noonan knew i guess i mean it was it was bad news it to the point I don't know if you've ever noticed this about me, and it's it's it, it would be weird if you noticed this about me. I like to use the word folks. Like, hey, where can folks reach you at? I mean, I've, no, know, I've like, noticed what, it, what, but it's not like, okay. it's like, this guy's fucking weird. Yeah, exactly. I'm, it's not like a, a bizarro word that I'm using, you know? He went off on me about the use of the word folks. It was just like, for him, folks means parents, and that's it. So you do not ask how where folks can get in touch with you because folks to him means your goddamn parents and he's just like going off on me i'm like i can't say anything right to this guy so i highly recommend that folks check out that episode it uh it will make your skin crawl a little bit and so obviously mr baron was not really um just dying to speak with me a second time yeah I can imagine why. Uh, And to elaborate on the Tom Noonan story, because I don't think I've ever told this story on a podcast. I interviewed Tom Noonan of Manhunter fame for a film that he was in last year. What was the name of that movie? Oh, Anomalisa. Anomalisa. I interviewed him for Charlie Coffin's Anomalisa, where he did essentially every voice other than like the main voices for the film. And it was like you said, having to drag the answers out of someone. And I ended up not airing the interview because of how 
kind of pissed I was after it because I was like, you don't agree to do something and then waste my time and waste your own time. So ugh, I I did. I guess I, I didn't do as good as you did. I should have just been like, you know, fuck it. <laughs> I'll release this fucking episode. Be done with you. So. Well, I don't think it was necessarily a, a... If I had felt bad or I felt like I was embarrassing him or anything like that, then I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have released that interview. Um, I think... I don't know if I necessarily look bad on it. It's just one of these, like... I mean, it, it reminds me of, like, the Terry Gross... Um, I mean, it's not nearly as extreme as, like, the Terry Gross uh, uh, Gene Simmons interview, but it was just one of those, like, really uncomfortable moments, and I was just like, I just want to share this with people. So, hopefully he doesn't come off as, as being uh, a real prick. Well, sometimes, so. you know, hearing something... You know, hearing something does it justice. Someone telling you a story just doesn't do it justice, so... I support you. I support you, my good comrade. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so um, as we kind of wrap this thing up, I, I we talked about this with Professor Doedziak, the whole um, uh, the Quester tapes music versus the Cold Shack theme. So as we play out here, I'm going to uh, end this episode with kind of a musical comparison of the two. Because I have to say the the Cold Shack theme is one of my favorite television themes. So I was really floored when I heard it kind of in a different context and slightly uh, you know arranged a little bit differently. But I think you know it stands on its own. I think it's a, it's a terrific, terrific theme and uh, one for the ages. I mean, I, I once I watch an episode, I have that stupid theme song in my head for probably the next. Well, and let's be honest here. It's always strange to hear Kolchak's what I would say, well-known theme song playing over Dean Wormer walking around. So as a millennial, Mike, that's what I know him from. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, did you recognize Mike Farrell of MASH? I did not. I well? just recognized Dean Wormer because he was on Double Seeker Probation. Yeah, it's pretty good too because James Shigeta is in the the movie. I'm talking about the uh, the the Quester tapes, and whenever I see him, I'm just like, Mister Takahashi will not be joining us for the rest <laughs> of his life. Yeah, there was a. It's it's almost like it's just really it's used in a way that's just like really like sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, since we're so familiar with the Kolchak theme, it's just like, whoa, hey, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, where can people find more information about you and keep up with the uh, the dulcet tones of oh, your voice? I have no dulcet tones. My t- I wish my tones were dulcet. Uh, you can follow me over at the Culture Cast podcast, where my co-host Eric Niss and I talk new movies and old movies as well. Well, old. We talk new movies, and we also talk about our monthly theme, which rotates every month over at the website. Right now, we're in the middle of our second crack at Sci-Fi Movie Month, and so we've talked about Evolution and Predator and Ghosts in the Shell, and we're going to be wrapping up the month with a talk about Dave Eggers' The Circle, which comes out at the very end of the month. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Culture Stash. Now, Mike, where can folks find you? Oh, folks, where can the lovely folks listen to the Projection Booth podcast, and what are you guys up to these days? Well, uh, we are just wrapping up a rather eclectic month of just, yeah, the strange, it, it, there was no theme for our month whatsoever, other than I really hadn't seen a lot of these movies, such as 
the Red Shoes, such as Grand Illusion, uh, such as Lynn Stopkowicz's Kissed from 1996, uh, a necrophiliac romance film. Um, we're doing Existence, which I had seen before, but really never gave it very much attention. So I'm uh, excited to talk about that. And then, yeah, just um, May is going to bring some more just off-the-wall selections, so stay tuned for that. And you can find out more about the Projection Booth podcast at projection-booth.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ProBoothCast, probably one of the worst Twitter handles ever. There's that. And, yeah, uh, you can find out more about this episode at our new website, ColdShackTapes.com. I don't know if you knew that we had a new website, Chris. I didn't, but I do now. Shows what yeah. good of a co-host I am. Well, I kind of snuck it out there. It was like I was trying to do all of this, like, you know, because uh, it's hosted via Blogger and then or Blogspot, but then uh, trying to get the uh, the domain name to uh, work with Blogspot and stuff. It, it took a lot of stuff. I had to go in and edit, like, CNAME stuff within the domain hosting and it it was a little scary for me. I was afraid I was going to blow up the internets. Hey man, I know the I know the I know the feeling. I had to mess with something like that last year. It's a uh, it's not a whole lot of fun from experience. But yes, so go over to colchacktapes.com and you know we are on iTunes. People can go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It would be absolutely fantastic if we got a little bit more notice. You know, let some of the other Colchak fans know that I think we're like the only fully dedicated cool check podcast out there uh and we should probably talk about uh next month we are not doing the second episode of cool check we are actually going to break ranks and come to you with the first episode of the cool check what are we calling it reboot reimagining and we've got reimagining and we've got some very special guests for that and i'm really excited for folks to check out that episode i think uh they'll come away with a new appreciation of what we can formerly considered an abomination what we thought that show was wasn't necessarily set up to be what it ended up being so i think it'll be a very revelatory uh episode for people to listen yeah i'm really looking forward to kind of flipping the script as it were on what is considered to be a bad show because i think coming back looking at it now what 10 years later was 2006 um 11 years 2006 right Coming back 11 years later, I think we'll be able to really give some fresh eyes on a show that I don't think anybody's talked about. I can guarantee you no one is talking about the Kolchak reimagining. <laughs> We're the only dedicated Kolchak reimagining podcast for sure. <laughs> for sure there. So if you know anyone who knows Stuart Townsend, send him our way because I'm not sure he's getting calls to talk about Kolchak from anybody else. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Come on back next month. We'll have something very special for you. And until then, we're out of here. How could you explain it? Who could explain it? Who would believe it?
very closely here. Do not touch the device, Jack. What's hidden inside the casing? What is it? The nuclear timing device. How many hours do we have, my friend? Less than 17. Question together, can't we remove this? Only the Slovak can remove it without detonation. 